This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So now, welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight, we are learning for the schut of Baruch Ben Yoel Tova, for Bracha of Panasa and Shalom Bayit. The topic that we are dealing with today is going to be a sort of a dual topic, but it's really one. We're going to speak about the Holocaust, as this comes out uh, very often when people try to, when people argue against God, against religion. The uh, Unfortunately, it's a very common uh, topic. Unfortunately for the topic, and unfortunately that it comes up so often, is how could there be a God if God allowed the Holocaust? So you can look at it in two ways. Number one, there must be there's no God because no God would allow the Holocaust. Number two, if there is a God and he did allow the Holocaust, then I want nothing to do with him. Both of them are are uh, a little bit of an idiotic uh, response to things, and Bezalel will try to explain that uh, today. Now, this is uh, another topic we'll speak about is is the story of Purim and how it's actually you know Purim was a topic, a story, really, that was an averted holocaust. And the holocaust was a actual holocaust. So we'll see the, the differences of relations and, and uh, things of such. This is a very, very sensitive topic. The holocaust is a very sensitive topic, and it has to be dealt that way. And I hope I don't plan on offending anybody. Um, the, the purpose of this is really to get on an understanding from an intellectual perspective as much as we possibly can. Now, for me to start saying this is why the Holocaust happened, I don't know. Nobody knows. Only God knows. But we'll try to understand from the ways of the Torah uh, of what possible, can you say, maybe these are possible reasons for it uh, happening. Uh, that being said, wh- one of the reasons why it's also a very sensitive topic for me is that I have some grandparents and great-grandparents that I lost uh, during uh, the Holocaust. I know my grandfather told me the story that uh, when he was, um, he-, he got out, but the way that he got out, he was actually sent to a work camp and uh, his father, so my great-grandfather, gave a SS officer $10,000, which is all the money that he had, and uh, basically bribed him to smuggle him and, you know, as much of the family as he can out of, uh, you know, out of the area to, for, for safety. So, the, so the, the, the actually, you know, this SS guard actually smuggled, or smuggled, he, he escorted my, my grandfather and uh, a few family members out to the border. The second that he got to the border, the SS guard says, listen, I'm out, it's all on your head, you know, and, and good luck. Now, my grandfather was traveling with a violin. And uh, when, when they stopped them, you know, they were like, where are you going? Because obviously you just can't, even in the outside borders, we can't just be randomly just walking out of, out of nowhere. It was wartime. So he says, oh, we're going to go play at a wedding. And he told me, he says, if they would have asked him to, oh, yeah, let's hear you play, they would have been done because he had no clue how to play the violin. He was just carrying uh, the actual uh, violin. But unfortunately, his younger brother... And his sister, along with her family, did not make it out, and they were uh, brutally killed on November 16, 1941. My for, that was from my mother's side. My father's side also. My grandfather never spoke about about what happened because he lost a lot of siblings. My father doesn't even know how many siblings he lost, and for how many siblings his you know how many uncles and aunts he lost. And the same thing for um, for my father's mother also. They did not speak at all about the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a very very terrible time for the Jewish people. So much so that some people were able to speak about it, other people were not. It's, and I'm only bringing this down, and this is also from my wife's side, also, you know, lost, unfortunately, uh, family members. So, this is a very sensitive topic, and it can't be treated just in a sort of a way, this is the reason that it happened. It has to be treated, it has to be treaded very carefully on, on how we go, and I hope and I pray that, that Bezal Hashem will do that, and the tent is not to offend anybody, chas or not to bring anything, but it should be a very, very big wake-up call. Because one thing for sure it wasn't, it wasn't a prize. It wasn't like, hey, you guys are great. I'm going to send you a Holocaust. It didn't happen that way. It was not a good thing. There was a bad thing, and we know, the Gemara says, when bad things happen, you have to you have to look into your actions. So, when you go and you speak to somebody, and they start saying, you know, um, they claim to be non-believing because how could there be a God if there is a Holocaust? So, the question is only valid only if you believe in God. Only if you think there is a God, then the question is valid. Because if there's no question, if, there, if there's no God, then there's no question. Why do bad things happen? I don't know. They got strong, they won, and they, that's it. They defeated. That's why it happened. The only time when it becomes a question, when people start asking how could there be a God, means that you believe or you, you have a thought that there is a God, but rather you just don't understand, you're not happy with the outcomes, you might be angry in it, which is, which is you know, which is an emotion, but it's not an intellectual belief that God does not exist. So, before we begin to try to understand it, let's get a, a go a brief uh, um, overview of the, the Holocaust. We'll start off with Hitler, Yemach Shimon, that, uh, you know, people think, you know what, 
Hitler had a very, very terrible upbringing with Jews. You know, he probably had, you know, like a really bad, you know, math teacher that was Jewish and failed him, and that's it. He's like to the end of all the Jews. And then actually, it's not like that. He actually had a very, very good uh, relationships with the Jews that he had. If I believe his doctor was Jewish, not a surprise again. Who saved his life? Uh, was a Jew. I don't know who saved the life, but yeah, yeah, when Jew. he was younger, mm-hmm. when he was there, Oh yeah. Okay. See, look at Hakatov. No, no gratitude. So, there was also, um, I believe his commanding officer in World War I was also Jewish. Uh, and, you know, uh, he had important figures in his life that were Jewish, and he had only good Jewish interactions. So, what was his deep-seated hatred towards Judaism, towards Jews? And one of the responses that you have to give is that it wasn't by a cause of something, because how bad of a hatred do you have to have to try to annihilate everybody from that religion? Like, that has got to be some serious-seated hatred. That's like, that's boiling beyond anything that's comprehensible that one guy cut you off, and I don't care how bad of a you know driver you are and how long you lived in Brooklyn, it's still very difficult to come and be like, I'm going to kill out the whole family? I mean, it, it, the whole nation? Anybody? The whole... It, 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 up to a certain point, it's like there's something else going on over here. And uh, that is where Amalek comes in. Amalek has this deep-seated hatred towards Jews with for for what apparent reason? For no apparent reason. You know, they started fighting against the Jews after the Jews left Egypt, for, uh, after the Jews left Egypt in the desert. For what reason? For what particular reason? They weren't, they weren't even, the Jews weren't even a threat to them. So, the uh, one thing that you can say, uh, cannot say about Hitler is that he was not a good politician. So that was double negative, which means that he was a very good, uh, he was an unbelievable talker. Think about it this way. Um, he is, what is he, black hair, brown eyes, and he's convincing a bunch of blue-eyed, blonde hair people that everybody needs to look like them. And that's the Aryan race, and everybody else is bad. So there's a guy preaching something that he is not, and he's able to convince other people he has got to be a good talker. And he ended up, uh, you know, basically bullying his way through Europe and, and taking over much of Europe. And, you know, for, for a big part of it, the United States and most of Europe did not do anything about it. They sort of, uh, you know, stayed back and, and watched. The... Um, to, to understand now where and how the Jews in the spiritual level ended up in the Holocaust, we have to back it up a little bit to the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment period was between 1650 to 1850. This was a this was a complete change in in the the way that the the world viewed things. Originally, it was this this basically the Enlightenment period turned the world into more of a secular uh, a secular viewpoint. So at one point it was very good because it brought the scientific revolution, it brought industrialization, it brought democracy. But at the same point in time, it really turned away from religion. This turned away from religion and very, very odd and interesting, the less that the, re- the religious Western world became, I'm talking about the Christianity, the, whatever it was, the less religious they became, the better off it was for the Jews. They sort of didn't care. They didn't care about their God. They didn't care about your God. They didn't care about anything. They cared about you know having a good time, doing what they wanted to do. So there was no fanatics that were trying to kill the Jews because of being Jews. Well, there was always, but not to the extent that it was uh, before. And then came Napoleon. Napoleon was very fascinated with the Jews. He, um, you know, he he actually liberated a lot of Jews from the ghettos. At one point in time, the Jews had to only live in get you know ghettos, and it's not ghettos like we know ghettos now, like I'm from the ghetto. You know, it's the Jews were were if you go to if you go let's say to to uh, Italy, Florence, Rome, Venice, Jews lived in a certain area. It was called the ghetto. That was the, the you know the, that was their location that they had to live. They couldn't live anywhere outside of it. The Napoleon was was he, he didn't understand like why they can't become like others. And in fact, he moved, what he thought was a good thing for, for the Jews was, let them become like others, and then there will be an end of, you know, the hatred. So, he advocated that, uh, for example, one-third of, of, uh, of all Jews should intermarry, should assimilate. By the way, if anybody wants to learn more information on this, uh, Rabbi Ken Spiro has a good um, uh, summary of, like, I think it's almost all Jewish history, if I'm not mistaken, on Aish website, which is where I got some of this information. So I would recommend that. The... Um, you know, so as if he was helping, he was he was helping the Napoleon, the Jews. Come on, go assimilate, and this is going to help you uh, become better. So over time, the Jews were granted citizenship uh, throughout uh, throughout Europe. The last two cu- countries, surprisingly, was Switzerland, which was in the year 1874 when the Jews were granted citizenship, and in Spain, which was 1918. Insane! Only in 1918, that's when the Jews were granted citizenship. The, you know, in theory, the Jews had the, um, you know, more rights, or you could say even equal rights, but in practice it was very different. The only way that a Jew could be practicing in whatever that is that he wants to in the secular world 
is he has to not be so Jewy. You know, be, you know, down, down out the Judaism, and then you could go in. So, um, because of this, there was a lot of uh, conversions, unfortunately, that were happening. There was uh, an example of Benjamin Disraeli, who was, he served as a prime minister of England, but he was only able to serve as the prime minister of England only after he converted to the Church of England. So he was able to reach up to a certain point, but up to, further than that, you needed either to convert, assimilate, or, you know, basically throw off any, any idea of Judaism. And this started happening very, very rapidly. And you see something very interesting also with, throughout history. When the Jews were oppressed, we sort of held on to their religion. The second that we, were, we got some freedom and we were able to do what we wanted, we sort of got lost into the, in the world. The, you know, in France, Italy, and Germany, the majority of the Jews assimilated, which means that we don't even know how, what the, our numbers would be like by now when you're talking about two or three hundred years ago of Jews assimilating. The, at this time, also a uh, terrible, uh, you know, thing started forming. It was called the Reform Movement. The Reform Movement was a way to start up, to sort of make Judaism more secular and more Christian. The, the, the leaders of the reform movement, they decided that they're gonna go and get rid of certain things like circumcisions, covering of the heads during, you know, praying, you know, tzitzit, talit, shofar, Hebrew language, everything's gotta go. And, uh, the, even the land of Israel, they even, they would not even do anything in, uh, in, in Hebrew, they would pray only in German. The, um, one of their, you know, Holdheim, he, he quoted like this, we know of no fatherland except that which we belong by birth or by citizenship. And this was Germany, bless you. This was in Germany, Germany they said this is the best. This is the highest level that we go, forget about Israel, we got Germany right now. The, um, by the middle of the 19th century, uh, the reform sort of took away Shabbat and put it into, and moved it to Sunday to become, uh, more like, uh, Christian. They also, uh, inserted a choir and a organ, so it'll be also more Christianized, and the, they started singing German songs as well in the, in the prayer over there. The, what's also very interesting is that you know the reform, they're known as temples. If somebody asks you, where's the nearest temple? Either, you know, he doesn't know anything about Judaism, or he's reformed. Because reforms, Jews don't go, I'm going to temple today. Reforms specifically call, call their synagogues their temples. Why do they call them temple? Because they're not waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. They're saying, no, this is the temple. We don't need anything. What we have in Germany right now, this is the temple. We don't need the Ushalayim. We don't need the Bet HaMidash. We don't need anything else. We're okay right now. The reforms started taking away, the, they said that the Torah was not given by God. The Torah was a man-made document, which you know what's interesting? For 3,000 years, no Jew ever, well, I can't say ever, no, no sect of Jews decided that said that the Torah is not from, from heaven. There was the Tzidukim, there was, you know, there was other people, like the Karaites, that they went and they said, no, you know, the, the oral law, that's when they start questioning. The rabbis made it up. That came already a while ago. But to say that the written law came, did not come from God was man-made, nobody ever said it. Only comes the reform 300 years, whatever, 250 years ago, and they decide they know better. Then the past 3,000 years, we got it all wrong for 3,000 years, and they, uh, and they got it. So, we had over here a, a sort of a, a pre-enlightenment period and a post-enlightenment period. So, in the pre-enlightenment period, we were hated because we were so different. You're not intermarrying, you're not doing business with us, you're staying by your own thing. So, we were hated. After the enlightenment, we started becoming like the non-Jews, and then we were hated, now you're becoming too much like the non-Jews. Why are you joining us so much? And this is where the, you know, Hitler comes in, and he produces something called the Nuremberg Laws, which stated laws as follows. Marriages between Jews and German are forbidden, which means, you know, Germans, Germans. And uh, a Reich citizen can only be a state member, only if he is of German blood. A Jew cannot be citizen of the Reich, sort of backdating everything that was that. He can, a Jew cannot exercise the right to vote, he cannot uh, occupy public office. Jews are forbidden to display the Reich's national flag or show any nation, uh, national colors. So this was the, um, this was the type of, of laws that were coming out for, you know, in, in Germany before even, you know, the, the Holocaust came about. This was the, the, what happened, you know, pre that. In 1938, actually it was November 9, 1938, this was where the first, I guess, explosion of, of anti-Semitism came into actually full force. It was known as Kristallnacht. This was known as the Night of the Broken Glass. What happened was, is, uh, well, there was a lot of glass broken. The, but 191 synagogues were destroyed, burned, and I think it was like 91 people were killed. There were also, besides that, I think there was like 30,000 Jews that were arrested, and they were fined a billion marks, if I'm not mistaken, so it's roughly $400 million for the damages. What? Weren't their businesses also destroyed? Oh yeah, at one point everything, but here is specifically synagogues. Yeah, but a billion marks wasn't a lot, there was inflation. That's what I'm saying, roughly talking about a $400 million, uh, if you you substitute into now. So, 
you know, obviously the Jews were trying to get out, uh, but no one really wanted to take the Jews in. Uh, the, I think America took in about 200,000. Uh, Canada took in about 5,000. And that's it. And I think, they, if I'm not mistaken, they asked Canada, how many Jews uh, can you take in? They said, none will be too many. And uh, uh, so we weren't really welcome in, in many places. And uh, all in all, we had about 800,000 Jews were able to escape, you know, the, you know, the Holocaust. And unfortunately, those that didn't escape, six, close to six million of those, you know, died a terrible, you know, unnatural, something that we can never ever fathom, that you had to have little kids watch their parents, parents watch the little kids, little kids watch their siblings, you know, things that were, un, people digging their own graves, thinking, th- things that were unheard of happened in the, you know, happened in the Holocaust. So now, how do we explain that? So we're going to start off, before explaining the right way, we're going to explain the heretics, the koflims way, which are people that do not obviously believe in God, and you'll soon see. We'll give a few examples, and then I want to give one response to every one of those examples, you know, it's just sort of a response to them. So, if you want to call these Jewish thinkers, there was one of them, and I'm not even, I'm not even going to list them by name, because uh, you'll see, they don't even deserve that. The... Um, he, there was one person, he became a conservative rabbi, which, uh, as we all know, means absolutely, exactly. But this particular rabbi, he was not a, uh, you know, dumb person, I guess you could say. He, uh, he had a, a PhD and a master's from Harvard on, he has a master's of sacred theology. I, to be honest, when I saw that, I, I'm like, that's pretty interesting. I didn't even know that degree existed. It sounds like something you get, you know, in uh, the wizardry school, you know. Uh, so, but he has a master's of sacred theology, and he argues that the horrors of the Holocaust proves that God cannot exist. This Chacham decided, he figured it all out. He says, because of this, God doesn't exist. Okay, let's move on to the next. The next one says that uh, the Jews now have taken on a new relationship with God. Now it's voluntary. You want to, you could, you don't want to, you don't have to. The Holocaust made it all voluntary. The next one is that the God is not all-powerful, not all-knowing, and you can't blame God for being responsible for this. He couldn't. It was out of his control. All those are extremely wrong. Well, those are the three main points. We're going to break them down. We're going to give one response to each of them, and then we're going to give the response of, you know, of what the Orthodox Jews, um, you know, hold up. Number one, the idea of that God is dead. That either this, this idea, which is the first one that we spoke about, the, is, is saying like, either God never existed, or God changed. That's what they say. So, a response to that is, just because you don't understand something, does not mean it doesn't exist. You could go, and, and obviously this is not comparable, but it's comparable enough that we can give an example. If you don't know how a plane flies, does not mean that planes don't fly. If you, if you don't understand how electricity works, does not mean that electricity doesn't exist. Just because you don't understand the situation of what happened, does not disprove something. Because you don't have the idea behind it. The next one is something called the eclipse of God. Where God is sometimes absent from history. I don't know, cigarette break, whatever it is that he, he was absent, and then things happened, was, oh my, I can't believe it, I left so long, and look what we have over here, a holocaust. This is one of the, the I don't want to maybe dumbest, because they're all pretty bad, uh, this is, you know, borderline on, on one of the worst, that's, you know, you don't see the full picture, you see just a part of it, which is really what we were speaking about last class, about suffering, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? People, got it right. Um, you have all this idea that you don't know the full picture. To say that God was, did you, were you watching God? Were you watching and be like, ah, I'm taking a break. I knew it. How do you know? How did, were you just coming to, you know, from, from where? From where did they get these, uh, these responses? Number three is a limited God, where God doesn't have the power. To this, a very simple response, just because someone doesn't flex their muscles does not mean they're not strong. Just because you don't see the muscles does not mean that the person is not strong. In fact, a weird, uh, you know, thing that sometimes you see like the really scrawny people, they're like the strongest. You like have no idea what, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know, as a kid growing up in, you know, we were, you know, in school, not always, you know, play chess and checkers, you know, and, you know, <laughs> tend to be a little bit wild. And surprisingly was, the scrawniest kids were the strongest kids by far. Like there was one, I, I remember one kid, he was so skinny, like a, a wind you thought he could, but this guy was, he would be able to put anybody down. I, I, I really don't understand it. But, so what? Just because someone doesn't look strong doesn't mean that they're not strong. Next one is free will. They say, you know what? God gave free will to the human beings, and it's a price we have to pay. God couldn't interfere with that idea. The Holocaust came because free will. They had the free will, and, you know, they, they won. And the answer for that is, is you can never, ever get something that wasn't decreed for you. You only get something only if it was decreed. And we'll speak about this a little bit. We'll, we'll actually expand about this in a little bit. But you can never say that just because there is 
free will, that means that anybody can do anything to you, and it's not, you know, that means that God doesn't run, run a, uh, the, uh, you know, rule the world. You know, I take it back. This is the worst one. Uh, this is the worst one. This is, <clears throat> he goes, there's no, you can never attempt an explanation, this person says. He says he believes um, that there is only, that could, there can only be silence after the Holocaust, God's silence and our own silence, which means that God doesn't have an answer and we don't have an answer. This Tipesh, um, um, and that's, uh, whoever doesn't like whatever. It's not a compliment. Uh, he, this guy, he's, you ask him, let's say he has a business partner. Do you know what your business partner is thinking about? No. Do you, maybe he's trying to, you know, scam you out of the business. Maybe he's trying to, you don't know what your wife is thinking about. I mean, if you're a good husband, you can hold maybe, you know, 0.5% of the time. A good wife usually knows 99% of the time what the husband's thinking about. But you don't even know what your partner is thinking about. You expect that you know what God's thinking about. You all of a sudden, these people have answers for everything. These are answers that are not even, they're, they're incomprehensible. It makes absolutely no sense. The other one is, uh, perhaps God is evil. And God enjoys this. And our response to that is, God is not a sadistic, abusive parent that enjoys, you know, what would be the point of creation? To watch people suffer? I mean, if that's your belief about God, then that... That's a terrible... Act. That, that person, by the way, for sure went through something. If they're, this is their belief that God is evil, you know that person went through some stuff in their life, and if they come to you and they say, you know why God doesn't exist? Because God is so evil. You know, by the way, that all that guy is asking is, is you know, there's some emotional thing going on over there. They need a hug. I don't know. They need they need something, maybe a shot of tequila. They need something, but it's not... God is not their, their you know, their issue. The other one, and we'll, speak, we'll finish with this on, the, on the, the list of kfirot, is that God has broken his covenant with the Jewish people. Divorced. That's it. We're, we're done. If anybody messed up something, it was the Jews. Look at we how we were for the past 300 years, for the past that, that we were going away, and all of a sudden, you know, we get a little, you know, well, it's not a little, it's a very big potch, and all of a sudden we're like, no, 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 no. It's God's fault. This, what you know what it reminds me of? It reminds, it reminds me of you have these abusive spouses that they say, I'm hitting you because it's your, why do you make me hit you? Why do you make me, why do you make me abuse you? Those are the people that they convince the other person that they're getting abused and it's their fault. And these are people that get angry, they hurt somebody, and they say, it's your fault that I got angry. It's your fault that I got hurt. Who, who are you to decide that? Like, you know, the, and by the way, when you realize from all these things, these are all excuses. None of these are actual reasons. These are all excuses to try to run away from God. You want excuses? You could give excuses. You're not looking for questions. There's a, and this, uh, you know, I should repeat this very often. When people have questions on God, that's good. When people have excuses on God, that's no, that, there's nothing to deal with that. When you're starting to deal with excuses for God, there's no one that can ever convince you not. Because you're making an excuse. When you make an excuse, there's no response to an excuse. The <clears throat> It is though, now we have to look at the, the, you know, the real response and, and what really is going on. Because if we're the chosen nation, we are the nation that received the Torah, we are the top of the top, we, you know, we're supposed to... This, we're the most prosecuted nation, persecuted nation in the entire you know history of nations. So best, worst, like did we flip the thing? You, it, it really does beg you to, uh, um, to to think about this. A quote for you. Um, this is from you know uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Finger brings down uh, in his book Ask Judaism. Victor E. Frankel. He was a renowned psychiatrist. He, he goes and explains like this. Says, imagine you have an ape that you keep on injecting this ape. Either let's say you're you're giving him some antibiotics, whatever it is, and you keep on injecting it, and he needs to get it at a certain point in time. Do you think the ape is ever going to be like, this is for your benefit, you know? And they inject it, and the ape is going to be like, oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, do this side, because this side is a little bit red. No, no, and ape, no matter how many times you're going to do it, you feed it treats or whatever it is, it's painful. The ape's not going to understand it. Just like an ape can never understand and say, oh, you know what? This is for my benefit. And this is, by the way, this is someone who has a Holocaust survivor. He comes out and says, then how are we to understand what God's doing? How can we understand what's going on over here and, and start saying that this is not good and this is good and this is not? We only know, and this is something we spoke about very, very in length. Not proper English, but okay. Uh, in last in last class, we have the parashah in Bechukotai goes and says like this: In Bechukotai telechu, if you follow in my in my the, the parashah goes on and speaks. If you follow my laws, then good things are going to happen. You're going to have peace, security, power. If you don't, then you'll have war, helplessness, you know, pain, a lot of un healthy and good things. The idea behind this is, is as follows. When we act like we're supposed to act, then we raise above the laws of nature. When we start acting like everybody else, and by the way, when I say we act like everybody else, acting like the non-Jews, for example, 
The non-Jews are allowed to act the way that, I mean, assuming they're the good, righteous non-Jews, they're allowed to act that way. We are not. We have 613 commandments. They have seven commandments. We have to act a certain way. They could act a certain way. We cannot act like them. They, in, in most aspects, they can't act like us, but they could, you know, if they do wish to uh, convert. When we start acting like them, then we no longer have the power of being above nature. Now we're, a, we're just like everybody else. The, um, you know, and I, and I get this all the time. I get this question, and I, I really don't like to answer this question on camera, but I, I need to do it once, so I'll do it right now. Um, because, you know, the, the question comes off often is, do, do, uh, the Jews and non-Jews have a same place in heaven? And the answer is, you know, very obviously and non-racist at all, no, they don't. Uh, and let me explain that. The idea behind this is like this. Look, think of it this way. You have an employee, you have a manager, you have a supervisor, or however it goes before it, then you have a director, then you have a vice president, then you have the president. If the manager messes up, it's bad, but it's not as bad as the director messing up. And that's not as bad as if the vice president messes up. The higher you are, the more you mess up, the greater it is. Now, at the same point in time, the compensation is not the same. The manager has more responsibility than the employee. The you know senior vice president has more than the manager. The director, and so on and so forth. Everybody has the more responsibility. You get paid more for it. The Jews have 613 commands that they need to do. We have a lot more stuff that we need to do. Now, we get paid for those stuff as well. The non-Jews have, you know, seven. And they get it. Not to say that there are some non-Jews that they're righteous non-Jews and there's some unfortunately Jews that they're wicked Jews. To say who is going to be higher in that, that's, you know, I can, you know, I cannot uh, uh, say that. But to understand, to understand this topic, uh, you know, concept a little bit, a little bit further, you have, um, you know, I want to say one of Obama's kids, but I don't know and I don't really care. The, they did something. And it was something that all teenage, I really don't know how old, I probably should have done more research on this, but, but well, Someone just bear with me. I don't know what they did. I, to be honest, I don't know if that was it. All I know is, so let's say they were in college and, um, they smoked some cannabis. And they went and everybody in college, apparently, of course, if you're not, you know, you're not supposed to be doing it, but they, they do and they smoke it. So why is it that the newspaper blasts it out? You'd be like, oh, look at Obama's kid. Look what they, look what they're doing. Be like, honestly, your son is also doing the same thing in the same college. You know, probably same dealer. Uh, you know, like, why is this one singled out more than the other one? And the answer is the higher, and this is always this is the way that it works in the in the world. The more that you are higher that you are politically, financially, uh, in any power sort of way or fame, you get held in a different degree. The, every little thing gets dragged into the light. That's why you have, unfortunately, let's say uh, you know a Jew gets arrested. If he has a little beard. Slap a rabbi into that title. Rabbi gets arrested. Well, what made him a rabbi? Oh, it sells better in the papers. You know, you have all these times that people get rabbi gets arrested. You have, what, what rabbi? This guy, you know, like this guy is, is no rabbi. He messed up. Okay, you know, some people mess up. But say, but when you slap a rabbi, oh, that it sells better. Why? Because you're rabbi, you expect more. So too Judaism. In Judaism, the, the Jews are expected to do more. We are expected to, leave, to to be living at a higher standard of life, uh, morally. The um, so. To, to take this, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, side, sideline it a little bit. When the Jews left the, left Egypt and they were in the desert, they, um, the people rebelled over there and they refused to enter the land of Israel. Um, and they cried, they cried without any cause. And God says, you're crying for no reason, I'll give you a reason to cry. And the following things that I'm going to tell you all happened on the same day. And that day was the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. The first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to even say how many you know Jews died. The second temple also was destroyed by Titus, and the second temple as well as many many uh, millions of Jews uh, died. The Bar Kokhba revolt was crushed in the city of Beitar by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Also, all this on the ninth of Av. The temple area and its surrounding were plowed by the Roman general Turnus Rufus. The Pope Urban declared the first crusade in the year 1095. King Edward expelled or compelling the Jews to leave England in 1290. The Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. World War I broke out in 1914. Uh, this is when Germany declared war on Russia. The Arabs began their riots in Jerusalem in 1929. And the mass deportations of Jews to the Warsaw Ghetto began in 1942. All these things happened on the same day on Tisha B'Av. Coincidence? I beg to differ. So why? Why is it all happening? Why is it all happening, particularly on, on one day? There was once a, um, it was a panelist that uh, one, of the, one of the panelists was sitting was a Holocaust survivor. And one guy stood up and he says, I don't believe God anymore because of the Holocaust. So the Holocaust survivor says, you know, I'll take care of this. And he says, I 
the Holocaust may believe in God so much more. Because look at what a godless nation can do without God. That made sense. The, for example, Hitler was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. That was he, that he was able to do that. And this, by the way, they, they say this all the time. You know where we get so many uh, um, so many deaths into the world because of religious wars. Religious wars cause us so many things. That is such an ignorant statement because Stalin was religious. Hitler was religious. There are and, and we'll, we'll bring it down. There are millions and mil, hundreds of millions, if I'm not mistaken, hundreds or even if close to that, that were that were killed and murderly brooded more than any other you know religious wars were the atheists. So if anything. You see from here is that look what a non-religious aspect brings. I'm not talking about Judaism, whatever it is, just any any religion in itself. The and the survivor said, "There's nothing left for me to believe in other than God." So, the um, so one understanding on this is when you look at what we were before the Holocaust, and you know, can you say it's a wake-up call? Possibly. Am I saying that this is the reason? Again, I don't know. I don't know if this is the reason, but is it a possible? Is it a possible cause? Look how far we fell from Judaism. We had the reform, we had assimilation, we had a conversion, we had intermarriage, we had everything bad that was going on. The majority of the Jews were going off, and then something happened. We didn't have a Holocaust for I don't know since you want to call it the first, the second temple, the destruction of the second temple. Again, we had the fourteen ninety two, we have the Inquisition, we have things like that. But on a level of this, we never had before, and all of a sudden we have it now, and then you're divorcing God. As if there is nothing else that could possibly come to it. This is the person that always blames somebody else. Never could take responsibility on themselves. Maybe, maybe, and just maybe, there was something that we weren't doing right that we need to fix. And maybe, just maybe, we need to learn from that. Instead of piling more excuses and more excuses and more excuses and saying this and this and that, stop for a second and think, why is this happening? Why does this happen? The Babich Rebbe, he, he went on a, on a different route. He says that, you know, we don't know. We don't know God's, we don't know God's way. And we know that every single person that died was a Kedoshin, was known as Kedoshin. We're holy, holy people. That, uh, you know, regardless of, of, you know, of, of what they were, they were very, they died for the sake of, of being uh, Jewish. Now I want to bring you to the next point, which is hilarious and sad at the same time. This is what people call the Holocaust deniers. I don't know if you, what? people that deny the Holocaust. Oh. Um, this, so, Every time I hear it, I, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even give it two seconds because it's like, it's like people that deny the sun. I'm, I'm like, I, what am I even gonna, gonna deal with it? But being, thank you, being that I'm already speaking about the Holocaust, I figured I'll, I'll touch upon it a little bit. So there are people, um, sophisticated, intelligent people. I don't know how intelligent, but the sophisticated people with degrees that say the Holocaust never happened. That, but then you know, they say, but there is proof. No, there's no proof. There's no hard. They say there is no hard evidence. Like, I didn't even know, it's like, it's like me standing in front of a person, and that person saying, I'm not here. You know? <laughs> okay. I remember this one time I was, I, I was, um, you see how kids, kids' minds work. I don't know why this popped in my head, but I'll share with you. I was standing once in, in this, uh, nursery, non-Jewish nursery. Why I was there was a different story. Um, and I'm standing over there, and a kid runs up over to me. And this kid, I remember, he had like a spider, like a fake, I don't know what they're called, tattoos. Like a, uh, I hope, fake. Otherwise the parents would get arrested. He had, um, he was like four or five years old. He had like a Spider-Man on one side and then a cross on another one. So he was like, you know, he was fighting Christian crime. Uh, whatever he was doing. <laughs> you know, and he stands in front of me for like, 30 seconds, and, you know, it's not nice to stare, so, I mean, like, I, so, I, I looked down at him, I thought maybe he wants to ask something, but he's not, he's just like this, just, like, staring, and I'm like, okay, kids, you know, are funny and weird, depending if they're yours or not, um, <laughs> funny if they're yours, weird if they're not, um, and he's standing for 30 seconds, and then after a while, I'm, you know, I stare back down at him, at maybe, you know, is that, and then he looks at me, he like, 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 serious eye contact, and he's like, can you see me? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can see you. And then he just runs away. So that conversation that I had with him, I find that more logical like than having a conversation with somebody that says, Holocaust didn't happen. There is so much evidence. The Holocaust was one of the most well-documented genocide in the history of the world of genocides. Uh, and to say that it didn't happen, so let's go with, uh, uh, you know, indulge them a little bit. In order for this to be made up, that means there are three things that have to happen. Number one, the victims, the Jewish victims, have to be lying, that it didn't happen. Number two, the witnesses, the German Nazi witnesses that testified, also have to be lying. And number three, the accused Nazis that were accused and admitted to the crimes in court also had to be lying. All of them had to be lying for all this not to happen. The, 
So somehow, the Jews, um, in their great infinite wisdom, apparently, were able to torture some key Nazis into confessing the crimes that they never convicted, and then plant hundreds of documents, hundreds of documents, some that were, that were found, by, found by accident, that were just happened to be found in a certain area. So we all planted everything, um, and including somehow convinced the Nazis to testify against their own brothers in the German courts against, uh, you know, themselves. And this is like, yeah, well, the Jews infiltrated uh, the whole German government and they took over everything. This is when you start dealing with conspiracy theories. And uh, you know, I had a guy once, and I don't know why I keep on going off topic on this. I had a guy once, came over to my, uh, he was actually collecting money. And he was collecting money, he was a cold outside, invite him over for, you know, for, to, to eat some, uh, you know, save dinner. And so he came inside and I was like, you know, this is an able-bodied young man. I don't know if I ever said this story. He's very, very, you know, like fit young guy. So I asked him like, why don't you, you know, why don't you go to work? And I know, like, I wasn't judging him, but like, I'm not gonna give you any money. I give him money, I give him food. But I said, you know, I said, why don't you go to work? So he told me he's from Israel and he, um, he went, he sent himself into exile. For reasons that are, you know, not appropriate. Not appropriate, not important. Um, so what? He decided he's gonna go into exile. What yeah. does that mean? Uh, again, not important. So, um, so he comes to America and he says, you know, he works a little bit over here and he collects money and whatever, whatever it is that he does. So I'm like, okay, fine. We started talking and I, something didn't, you know, bother me until all of a sudden the conspiracy theories started coming out. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. Now I know, um, uh, of the situation because, you know, there's some people that are so involved with conspiracy theories that it's, it's like, dude, come on. Just like, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, the Jews own the government, they own the money, they own this, and we own the baking system, we also own the media, and we also, um, are part of the Illuminati, and we also, yeah, there was an inside gov- government job, take down the 9-11. I know I'm gonna get, by the way, emails now and be like, well, actually, you know, I had over here, it's all explosions beforehand. The face of the devil came out in the dust. Um, so, now, whether it is or it isn't, I don't know. I, I didn't do enough re- research into it to, to actually say not. But, um, I don't say all conspiracy theories, but some conspiracy theories make you look a little bit, you know, like, you know, cold people in white coats, you know, type of type of situation. Some conspiracy theories, all right, I'll, I'll give that to you. Uh, I'm not, you know, against the whole conspiracy theory, but some to say that the Holocaust didn't happen, you need white coat people, and you need to be tied up and locked down. To, to say I don't understand the, the the overwhelming evidence. If you never looked at it, then fine. You're just an ignorant person who just says whatever they want. Uh, we have plenty of those. But to look at the evidence and then say, no, 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 it didn't, it, it didn't, and to, to even, in the past 50 years, since this, you know, the, since the, the trials and everything, not one Nazi, not one, not one Nazi or German or whatever ever came in and said, yeah, we were forced to do it. So we did such a good job. You know, we did such a good cover-up job. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you guys were really good at it. I'm like, did this make any sense at all? Even if you just go based on population statistics, they say we have no hard evidence. The document, the populations, what happened to all the Jews? Where did they go? So they actually claim, no, only 300,000 Jews died. So where do you, where's the other five and a half million? Where do they go? Uh, you know, I, you know the, the way they explain the crematorium, again, this is a whole topic itself. What about all the photographs? It could be faked. Photo, Photoshop, or whatever, it didn't exist back then, but whatever, there's something else. So, they go on and on with all the craziness that they go through. Now, when I read this, when I started re- reading into it, and then I was like, you know what, it always bothered me when people said, I don't believe in God. And then I give them proofs, and they still don't believe in God. Now, you want to refute the proofs? I'm all for that. But to not even refute the proofs and just say, no, 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 no. Fake, fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news, everything's fake. To say that, that's something so ignorant, I'm like, how could that be? But now when I read this, and I was like, you know what, if people could go and deny the Holocaust, which is hard fact evidence, you cannot deny it. the fact that, and there are senators, not, not yet, there's someone's trying to run for a senator, that he is a, I don't know if he calls himself a Nazi, he's not affiliated to any group, but he believes that the Jews made up the Holocaust, it wasn't there, what would be the purpose for all this? For money. We did all this for money, and maybe for the state of Israel, depending on who you ask, the, um, the absurdity of how it sounds. Like, there's a certain point in time, like, I wonder if they hear themselves on how crazy they sound. To say you have the facts and to say everything is all fake, then, you know, when somebody comes over to me and says, I don't believe in God, I'm like, all right, you know, you're not as crazy as the guy. I mean, you're not crazy at all. I mean, some people just need the knowledge for it. But to the idea that you have somebody who could just go into facts that are just like, this was not a good cut. This is black. And be like, no, this is red. And you're not, we're all non colorblind. If someone could say that, then, then it doesn't bother me all of a sudden so much when somebody cannot understand God. The, the real reason behind it all is these people, 
they don't want to believe in the Holocaust. They don't want it because then there is something that they need to feel bad for the Jews or whatever it is that the reason they want it. So they have the same idea. They have these excuses. They have these excuses that they're just giving, giving, giving that there is no need and let's, uh, you know, let's, let's make it up that it never, it never happened. The same idea. When people push away God, why do they push away God? Because I want to do what I want to do. I want to party. I want to do, I don't want to be bound down to laws. I don't want to be, you know, stuck doing certain things. I want to be free. I asked this guy once. I was trying to get him, uh, you know, I was trying to get him to keep Shabbos. And I said, why don't you keep Shabbos? He said, you were, he was a religious guy. And you know what he told me? He says, it's a day off. Saturday's day off. I want to go to the beach on Saturday. I'm like, go Sunday, go Friday. Like, why do you have to be specifically? And he had no reason. And he believes in, it was very interesting because I, you know, whenever that happens, I figure they don't believe in God. But no, no, I believe in God, 100%. They believe in God, it's like whatever, you know. I choose not to, uh, you know, not to follow it. it. Happens to be these people all lacking knowledge. It's not that they are, you know, the, the very big fundamental that you really learn from this when you're dealing with these people is they don't understand it the, you know, I don't want to say the correct way, but they don't understand it the full way. They really don't know what's going on up here, and they maybe they think it's not so bad. Maybe they don't think that maybe they think it's okay. It's not a big deal. Whatever it is, it's it's very unfortunate and has to be dealt with in that way. This uh, leads us to a uh, an, another another point, which is very important in this in this topic. Can you hurt somebody if it wasn't decreed for that person? And the question comes in in Genesis chapter fifteen, verse thirteen. Wait, what that. The question is, can you hurt somebody if it wasn't decreed that this person should get hurt? I don't understand the question. Uh, can the Holocaust have happened if God didn't decree it? Oh, okay. Okay? So, God tells Abraham, and he says, you know, your children are going to be enslaved in a land that they don't know. And we know that later turns out to be Egypt, but then God goes and punishes the Egyptians. Now, the question is, is why did God punish the Egyptians? This was already decreed that the Jews would be enslaved in a land that they were not, and the Egyptians were just following the order, following the, the script. So, Ramban, Nachmanis explained, says that, true, the Jews were supposed to be enslaved, but nowhere does it say anything about getting tortured, about getting murdered, nothing about it. They add all that, and that's what they're getting punished for. Next question is like this. It says, okay, so the Jews originally, and you have to follow along with this, the Jews were Supposed to be enslaved. But then they got murdered. So now the Egyptians got punished on it. But now do the Jews deserve to get murdered? Do the Jews deserve to get, you know, enslaved in such a brutally tortured uh, manner? Or not? That was your question. Okay. So, I don't know. Um, he pointed at that. <laughs> okay. So, the, to, to, to answer that, we have to look at the evil eye. To, the answer that we look at is something we spoke about. What? Evil eye. Yeah. Well, listen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What you say, evil eye or superstition to Russians? You know the. What you said? <laughs> so, the the Gemara says that you know ninety nine percent of the people that die from in, the, in that particular graveyard died from an evil eye. The question is, is that if so many people die from evil eye, so many, the evil eye is such a power, then why do we pray on Rosh Hashanah for all, the, we should just pray, save me from evil eye. And then everything else will go away, just save me from evil eye. So, this is the answer that we gave before, but it's good to, uh, to review it over here, this is the answer from the Chazonish. The Chazonish says like this, he says that there are three categories of, of areas we have to look at. Number one is, there, if somebody was decreed on Rosh Hashanah that he should not die, Evil eye, no evil eye, doesn't matter, he's not dying that year. He was decreed that he should not die, nothing's happening, he's not dying. There is another way that if the person was decreed to die. Now, if it was decreed to die, so now he could die through an evil eye, through a car accident, through whatever it is, but evil eye is an option. So, not so scary, not so bad, evil eye is not so bad. So, it was what happened, happened, depends on how it's going to happen, the evil eye or not. But the Chazon Ish continues, and he says there is a third category. I'm sorry, how would you die, like how... How the, evil the evil eye could make you have a car accident. It could make you have that, like oh, that. Okay. It's not like somebody's going to be like, and then, you know, that's I it. Mean, so, yeah. So that, but so to so to understand this, the the third category is the most important one. That is that you're judged on Rosh Hashanah, sort of an open book. Let's see how this happens. Can this person live out the year and can this person not live out the year? You're not written in anything. You're sort of in the ear. Hazanish goes and says, there's some people that are not decreed to live or die that year. It's sort of, let's see how it works out. Let's see how it happens, how they behave. So, the, that says the Hazanish, that a person can die with an evil eye. Could die from that of an evil eye. So we see over here that an evil eye has a very, very strong power. But then the question is, is, we have to go back to the same question. 
how could that be fear? If that person didn't deserve it, then how could he get an evil eye and how could he die? It, you know, just because somebody else put an evil eye in it? So to answer this is to understand how an evil eye comes from. The way that a person can get an evil eye is he has to open up one of the one, one of the ways is if this person gives an evil eye in somebody else, then we can be measure for measure. Everything is measure for measure. The way that you prevent yourself from getting an evil eye, by the way, is don't give an evil eye to anybody else and they cannot give it on to you. So if this person goes and gives an evil eye unto somebody else, then he opens it up and hence it's an evil eye in him and hence it's measure for measure. Which means is, which means, and I'll get you in a second, which means is nothing that happens is just by chance. Everything is measure for measure and everything is decreed. To say that the Holocaust wasn't meant to happen, to say that this person wasn't meant to die, it's it's very unfortunate. But everything was supposed to be the way that it was. To understand it, that only we'll only understand after 120. But it was supposed to say that it wasn't happening or it didn't happen or it shouldn't have happened or it couldn't have happened, you know, that's you know irrelevant and, and it doesn't answer anything. To say, yeah, what are you going to do after the Holocaust? We're going to be our arms. We're going to come strong. Never again. Never again. That's the thing. Never again. Start keeping Shabbat. That will maybe make it never again. Start keeping kosher. Stop doing the things that you're supposed to be doing and then maybe we can say uh, never again. You want to, can you? Yeah. How, okay. do you, how would you put an evil eye on someone? Like, I don't... An evil eye works, by the way, like this. Okay. So, if, if, for, if you do want more information, we have a whole class titled Evil Eye and Superstition, I think it was, in Torah Anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the uh, so if not, I'll bring, I'll explain it over here. The way that the evil eye, the way that the evil eye uh, works is that if you go and give an evil eye in somebody else, now how do you go and give an evil eye else? Do you concentrate really hard on that person? No. The way that it works is is that this person, let's say, has a beautiful ring, and you are going to say, "How come she has that ring and I don't have it?" That makes an evil eye. Yeah. What? It's jealousy, but in, a, in an aspect of why do they have it and not me? I am better than that person. I should have it. They shouldn't have it. So what you're really doing in the upper world is that you're opening up the, you know, the, then the angels open up be like, okay, well, let's see. Do they really deserve that beautiful ring? And they start opening up the books and they start looking at me. Maybe they don't deserve it. Yeah. So you, yeah. So you, yeah. Even a lot of questions, I'm saying. Okay. So the, so that everything is measure for measure. Which means is, no one can hurt you if it wasn't decreed. And how was it decreed? You must have done something that make it, to, to have it uh, decreed that way. This uh, uh, brings it down, uh, this um, story of a farmer. This farmer uh, goes and he has a, um, he has a horse, the ho- one horse, and the horse runs away. And his farmer, I think I read this on Simple to Remember, I think .com if I'm not mistaken. And the farmer comes back and, and the people come to console him because his only horse ran away. And they said, well, I'm so sorry about your horse, you know, it's terrible. And he says, listen, bad, not bad, I don't know, I don't really know the whole, the whole story. Two months go by, or whatever it is, a week later, depending on you know how much attention span you have. And uh, the horse comes back. The horse made a bunch of friends. They made uh, made twenty friends, and twenty horses came back now. So he has twenty one horses. So now the farmer, the, the farmer's neighbors, they came to start you know going to him and say, you know, I want to congratulate you on you know all this amazing you know thing. You got now twenty one horses. That's unbelievable. Wild horses. So he says again, I don't know. Good, not good. I don't know. Then the you know one of the following days, this farmer's son was riding on one of these wild horses, and they were becoming really wild. And they flipped him off his uh, you know while he was riding, he fell down and he broke his foot. And the far, you know they came to console and be like, "I'm so sorry that you know this this happened and you know this horse did that." So he said again, "I don't know, bad or good." I, the farmer says, "I really can't tell." The next day, right after he broke his foot, the a war broke out and the uh, and the army came in to to draft as many able-bodied young men as possible. And when they came to the farmer's son, they were like, "Listen, he's broken foot." So he got ready you know, dismissed from, from army duty. So now the farmer goes out and says, now I know that everything that happened was for the best. The same thing, we don't know. And, you know, we don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole situation. And as hard as it is to say, and it's very difficult, everything that God does is for the best. How do we understand that? We lost family members. We lost that. I don't know. I can't give you the answer for that. But one thing I do know is that you have a father in heaven that loves you and cares for you for every single thing that you do. And that is, you know automatically that that is for the best. This is what brings us to one of our final points on this before we, we go and explain the, the uh, poema on, on this topic. Is Think of a same scenario happening to two different couples. So one couple is a very good relationship. Another couple is a not very good relationship. The good relationship couple, both of them, they say you have to be, the wife says to the husband, I need you here 8, 8, 8, 8 p.m. sharp, you have to be there uh, for me. And she's doing whatever she's doing and she needs him to be there. So fine. The, the comes 8 o'clock, 
the husband doesn't show up. 8.30 doesn't show up. So the good couple, she, you know, the, where they have everything good, she sees the husband's not showing at 8 o'clock. She's not showing at 8.30. She's not showing at 9 o'clock. What is she thinking? Did something happened to him? Is everything okay? I wonder if everything is, is, is fine. Now, you pause that scenario. You have the same exact scenario in a bad relationship. And the wife, you know, is waiting there. 8 o'clock shows up. The husband doesn't uh, come. What do you think she says? Of course he doesn't come. He's good for nothing. He doesn't do anything right. 8.30 doesn't come. I'm going to have his head. You know, 9 o'clock doesn't have... If he doesn't have a good reason for this, he better be dead. If he's uh, dead, then he is going to, you know, deal with it. Same scenario, different responses. Why? Because it depends how you view the other person. If you have a good relationship with God, then you see that God loves you and God cares for you. Then anything that bad happens, you be like, okay, if God loves me and God cares for me, this must be for the best. If you have a bad relationship with God and you don't like God or whatever it is that you have with God, then everything that you see is going to be bad and it's going to be terrible and everything is bad, 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 bad. Why? It all depends on the context of your relationship with God. And really, that really depends on, on everything. Now, I want to share with you how this, how this is actually related to on, on, uh, on Purim. And then, and then we'll open up for some questions. The, there's a beautiful article that I read uh, by Rabbi uh, David Rosenfeld. In Estelle, chapter 9, verse 13, it says like this. It says that, and I'm going to quote, Allow the Jews who are in Shushan to do tomorrow as they did today, and let the ten sons of Haman be hung, hanged on the gallows. Now, the reason why this comes up as a, as a little bit of a question is the ten sons of Haman were dead already. Why, are we, why is Esther going and says, let's hang them tomorrow? You know, let's kill them tomorrow. So there's two things that we need to, we need to, uh, we need to focus over here on. Number one, the, the word for tomorrow was used machar. Machar in, you know, often means, often means to, in the distance future. Not just tomorrow, often means like tomorrow, like, like very, very far in the future. The, another aspect that you have to know with the, with the Megillah, with Megillat Estel, is when it says king, the, under the Kabbalistic version, when it just says king, it's referring to the king of king, God. So, when it says over here, the Megillah is alluding to something, that somewhere in the future, there is going to be, you know, the hanging of ten of Haman's sons. Now, when the, you look at the, the Megillah, and this is in Hebrew for everybody can see it. The, um, if you can see, the, there is three letters that are written very, very small. Let's see if I can see it from here. Uh, from here. There are three letters that are written uh, very, very small. We have one over here, one over here, and one over there. So you have the Tuf, the Shin, and the Zion. These letters are written very small. And the question is why? Every letter is supposed to be the same letter. Why are these particularly small? There's also one extra big one. This is valve over here. So, this, if you take out these letters, which, did I write it big? Yeah, here it is. If you take out Tufshin Zion over here, it comes out to the numerical value of 707. And the Vav means the sixth millennium, which means this, this is the year 5707. What is the year 5707 in the American uh, calendar? It is 1946. What happened in 1946? This is amazing. It's unbelievable. There were the Nuremberg trials. And there were 11 Nazis to be hung. Yeah, which was really unheard of. Like, I don't know why. Specifically, they hung. there were 11 Nazis that were, that were to be hung. And, um, and in fact, one of them were not hung. Only 10 of them were hung. Why? Because one of them committed suicide. Let's pause that for a second. Let's look at the story of Estelle. Uh, we know Haman had 10 sons that were hung. He also had a daughter that committed suicide. This person that committed suicide, his name was Herman Goring. He also happened to be a cross-dresser. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that's a coincidence, that's, that's you know, interesting. Ten, of, 10 German Nazis were hung, and you know what one of them, Julius Streicher, he said after his Facebook cover, before he was hung, he screamed out, Perm Feast 1946. And if you don't believe me that this is some Jew made it up, this is written in Newsweek magazine, October 28, 1946, page 46. He screamed out, Purim Fest 1946. What? Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Ten German people who are, you know, arguably, you know, many people say that they're Amalek, they're from, uh, you know, the, you know, the, um, from the same line as Haman. You have over here, got hung, and the same date that is hidden in the, in the Megillah. The little numbers, the little, the little letters that are, that are over here are all alluding to a date. And that date is the exact date, 1946, that this, um, that this, that this thing happened. To, to say this is a coincidence is beyond, you know, irrational to, it's unbelievable. Wait, what's the relation to Purim? Like, Purim, oh, so that we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to what's the relationship with, uh, with, uh, Purim, first of all, was an attempted Holocaust. Haman wanted to destroy everybody. Kill every single Jew, men, women, and children on one day. It was an attempted Holocaust. It didn't, it, you know, didn't survive, but it was a attempted Holocaust. If you take, this is another cool fact, unbelievable. If you take the first, um, the first men in Genesis chapter 4, verse 14, this is where it says Estel, but it's not pronounced Estel, it's Estel, in, uh, in the, 
in the Chumash, you take and you and you go from the first mem and you skip twelve thousand one hundred and eleven letters, which stands for which stands for the exact amount of letters in Megillat Estel. You will spell out Megillat Estel. Migilat Estel was written in equal mathematical skip from the Reishit, chapter 4, verse 14, from the first mem over there that's written in that pasuk. And the same pasuk is where it says Estel also, the name Estel as well. Now, there is, that's Maldor, that's something else. Yeah, I'm going to... 12,111. So, the, um, the, the Hassam Sofer goes like this. And he says, you want to know what's one of the most fascinating miracles of her? So the fact that Vashti, you know, was murdered and you know, she got killed, she was a nasty lady. It was only a matter of time when he was going to, you know, do something to her. The fact that Esther became queen, she was very beautiful. She was, you know, fit the role. You know, she became queen. The fact that Haman got hung and got destroyed, he's a messed up man. It was only a matter of time before, you know, he was going to, uh, you know, get, you know, the biggest miracle was that while the Jews were... You know why the, the whole Purim story happened? Because the Jews were in the Feast of Haman. They were not allowed to be in the Feast of... Sorry, of Achashverosh. And they went and they... You know what the feast was? The feast was celebrating that the Jews are never going to rebuild the temple. There was the, the Kedim over there. So the Jews are celebrating them not being able to have the temple anymore. And that was that's when the decree was signed. The biggest miracle was, during that decree is when God was starting to orchestrate how they're going to get saved. Because during that party is when Vashti died. Vashti got killed. And that's what led all the factors led up into Esther coming into power. So while, look how God loves us. While the Jews are sinning and slapping God in his face, you know, Lahavdil, God is saying, okay, but now I'm going to save you this way. Like, this is going to happen, but I put in all the things into play of how the Jews were going to get saved. Now we look at the story of Purim. And this really fits in so perfectly on what we've spoken about this class and the previous class. Does not look like a good story. Look in the beginning. You start off the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed. Going a little back, then the Jews were exiled. Right, that's how they ended up in Persia. Then they were exiled for seventy years, and seventy years didn't come. And the Jews went and they celebrated a party with Achashverosh. Then Vashti was killed, and Haman rose to power. Also, all not good signs. And then Haman came out and says, "I'm going to destroy all the Jews." Again, not good. And then to finish everything off, Esther invites Haman to a party. What did the Jews think? Great. She switched sides on us. Now the first only hope that we had. We lost it. Everything looked like it was going bad. And if you go to Esther, on this idea I, I spoke about last year, I don't know, I, I wouldn't speak about it here, I spoke about it at a different location, um, as follows. That Esther had a very, very hard upbringing. She didn't have any parents. She was an orphan. Her father died before, she, while her mother was pregnant, and her mother died in childbirth. So she came into the world, you know, without any parents. Now you look at the story over there also, like, come on, you know, look how sad, look how, it's such a, it's so, you know, no parents, nothing, it's so terrible. And I'm sure people ask questions, like, what, what's going on? Like, how could God do that? It's just a, such an innocent little baby. And, you know, as, you know, the, the time goes on and she grows up, and she always saw, she, she always wanted parents, like any orphan would always love to have parents. But there was one main reason that she wanted to have a parent. And that main reason was, she saw, she was a righteous woman, and everybody was able to honor their parents. And he says, I can't honor my parents. Says the Alshech, she wanted so much to honor their parents, but she couldn't, she didn't have any parents. Says the Alshech, that's the greatest honor possible to a parent is when you want, when, in, in exactly the aspect that she was doing. Because we know something very important. That if you really, really want to do something, but you weren't able to beyond your, you know, abilities, you get rewarded as if you did it. So if you really, really wanted to give charity to this person, but you didn't have any money, you couldn't, whatever it is that you couldn't do it, but you really, really want, you get rewarded as if you did it. It's not, you know, again, people take this off of really, I want to want, I want to want to want to want. Eventually I'll become modest. You know, I want to 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 the 10th power. And that doesn't count. I'm talking about where you really want it, really badly, and you can't, you just can't, then God counts it as if you did it. So now, whenever you do a mitzvah, there's factors that get to play with it. You go and you give charity. It's okay, now you get a little honor. Like, thank you, Kavo, thank you, you know, so, you know, thank you so much for helping me. You get a little honor, you get a little good out of it. So, the emotions, the intentions, everything that comes out of the mitzvah comes into that factor. That decreases from your reward, especially how you, depending on how you take it. So, the greatest way to get a mitzvah, you have two options over here. One is to actually do the mitzvah. Two is to really, really want it, but unfortunately beyond your control, you're not able to do it. Which one is greater? The one that if you really, really, really want to do it, but you can't do it, that's a greater reward. Which means is, Esther honored her parents to the highest level possible. Because she really, really, really wanted to, but she was just not able to do it. This is how the Ashraf explains it. Now, fast forward a little bit to Haman. Haman goes to Ahasuerus and says, listen, you know, I want to murder all the Jews. And Ahasuerus starts laughing, says, listen, everybody wants to murder the Jews. You know, we all know, but we can't. These, they're like cockroaches. You know, it's not possible. You, you just can't murder all of them. And I, I don't think he said cockroaches. So, um, he goes and, and he says, but Haman says, but I am different. I am different. He says, how are you different? 
says, because I come from Esav, Amalek. He comes from Aman Hagagi, comes from Amalek, comes from Esav. He says, what does Esav have? Esav has one mitzvah over Yaakov, and that is he honored their parents more and greater than he honored than Yaakov, because Yaakov was out for 22 years, running away from Esav. And that's where Esav was able to honor the parents. So, um, so you know, Aman says, I have one up on the Jews, and I will be able to do it because I have kibbud Aim. I had the, 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 um, the law of honoring your parents. So now, everything looks bad. And now when you, you fast forward and all of a sudden it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, final round, it's the fight, it's a fight round. And you have Haman, and you have Estelle on one side. So Haman has his honoring of his parents from that. But then you have, you have over here Estelle. Estelle, who has the highest level of honoring of the parents possible. Which means is the only person that could have taken down Haman only was somebody like Estelle. Because she didn't, she had such a high level of schut, of merit, of honoring the parents, that she would have been the only one to take down Haman. So what looks like so bad, in an essence, was all building up to be the greatest saving of the Jewish nation. The, the thing that not, no one, no one, no one was hurt. Everybody was saved in this aspect of it. It looks bad. Now you look at it in the beginning. You look at all the bad things that happened. The 70 years, it was a calculation. And that's why the Gachos made a party. Because he thought that that's it. There's not going to be, a, the Jews are not going to be a surviving more. It looks very bad. But in essence, he just miscalculated. And the 70 years came. And when he came, the Jews got, got back the, the, you know, the Bet HaMikdash. You have Vashti was killed and Haman was ra- raised into power. We just said that's the salvation. That's how we got saved when Haman went into power. All of a sudden, Haman came out with a decree. Destroy all the Jews. Says that's what caused the Jews to do tshuva, and because the Jews did tshuva, they got they got saved. Esther invited Haman to the party. This is the way that she brought him down. This is how everything went down. When you look at the story from the way that it's written, and you look at it from the from the beginning, it looks very bad. You look at it at the end, everything was so beautiful. Everything matches in so perfectly. But one thing we see over here is you see that the Jewish people, when they had the same scenario, you had Haman and you had Hitler. When the Jewish people did tshuva. We got saved. Now to say, I can't blame, I don't know what happened in the Holocaust. I could only tell you what happened on Purim. But Purim, we got into a situation that we were almost destroyed and we didn't raise arms. You know, we didn't start doing push-ups and learning Krav Maga. And that's not what saved us. We did tshuva. We did repentance and that's what saved us. When you look, you want to not have a Holocaust again? I'll tell you the formula. And this I'm confident saying, do tshuva. Fix yourself and make sure that that doesn't have a Holocaust. Not something else. I'm going to give you in a second. I want to finish off with one final thought, and that is the fish. And I know I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit over. Okay. The, you ever see the, you know, when you have the, the fish, this is, this is, this was not my Vatoa, this is Rabbi Fishel Shachta said, it's beautiful. The, you have this, the Mishneh Chasada, you usually see two fish that are facing each other. Right? And you always wonder, what's up with that? Like, what's with the, you know, the fish? If I'm not mistaken, I think fish has something to do with Christianity. I don't know, I never looked into it, but I know they have this, like, you know, fish symbol on their cars. And that usually means, you know, the cross somewhere over there. Um, so, the, what, why are we, why are you putting on the, the, you know, the fish on a, specifically facing, facing each other? And I heard this, this is a fascinating, uh, shot on that. I really, really enjoyed it. it fish, fish, fish. You know what I'm talking about? You never seen a picture of Mishinech Masadam, Abim Simcha, all those things? They have, you'll see they have two fish on it. I don't know, they also have fish. Yeah. I feel like I'm really unclear today. Am I unclear? Is it not? Is it? Huh? Right. Pesach, we don't have the month, you know, you have Sukkot, we don't have the, you know, we don't celebrate the, you know, the symbols of the month. Um, why specifically only um, Adal that we have it? So, the, okay, good? Okay, Bo Hashem. So, the, you, you look, searched up the picture, you found what I'm talking about? Okay. Okay. So, the, the idea is like this. The idea is, a fish goes, and it eats other fish, well, most fish. And, it, how do they do? They go and they chase. They chase after the fish, and they, they open up their mouth wide, and they're like, you know, you know, Pac-Man, get the fish. But then what happens is, how do they actually get, that fish is fast, and they swim away. How do they actually get eaten? There's another fish that's swimming around, right? It's like this Nemo guy, and he's like, oh, tunnel, let's check this out. And, dinner. Um, into other fish. He just swims into other fish's mouth. And he goes in head on, head first. Now, what would be if you have a fish of very similar sizes eat another fish from behind? The fish have scales and fins. Now, when the fish goes down, the skins and the tails come up and it's going to scratch the whole esophagus of the fish. And it's going to be very, very painful and the fish is going to, you know, suffer from it. So the only way that the fish could eat without getting har- harmed 
is if the fish, with scales obviously, comes in head first, because then the fins don't open up, they, they just shut down, everything goes down smooth. When we look at life, we chase after things, and we say, this is going to make me happy, this is going to make me happy, this is going to give me the reason things, and we chase, and we chase, and we chase. Meanwhile, God's saying, you know, you're opening, you're running with your mouth open, but God's going to be like, he's going to swoop in with your happiness and like dunk it in, he's like, this is what's going to make you happy. You know, not what you think, many times in life we think this is the way that we need to go, this is the answer that we need. God says, you don't know anything. I'm going to show you exactly what you need. You open just like the fish, you'll go in. You ever think about it? It's a month that we're supposed to be happy. How? How are we supposed to be happy? That we are supposed to be happy if you learn, you realize that everything that happens is for the best. Not the good, not the bad. Everything that happens is for the best. We might not understand it in the beginning, but in the end we'll always understand it. That is how you're going to reach ultimate happiness. That's how you're going to reach ultimate understanding. You want to know how to understand the Holocaust? I can't help you over there. I don't know why. Possible reasons? You know, we weren't doing what we we're supposed to. Very, very strong reason. I hold very, you know, strongly by it. Now again, I can't say that there's, there's so many Jews to say that everybody's at fault. Absolutely not. But we all Jews are related. We're all connected. If you have, uh, you know, this example that I heard, a diabetic and he eats sugar, a lot of sugar stuff, is, you know, and then the, they gotta amputate the foot. What is the foot gonna say? Be like, hey, why are you doing me? I didn't get any better for Get the stomach out. He says, what do I have to do with it? No, it's one body. Of course, everybody's going to relate it. We're all one people. If one person sins, it affects me. If I sin, it affects you. If you do a mitzvah, it affects me. We're all connected and we're all related. Regardless of how we look at it, and regardless of how you think of yourselves as Russian Jews, and now Moroccan Jews, and Sephardi Jews, and Ashkenazi Jews, we are all one nation and we're all interrelated. And if we don't realize that, and if we don't figure that out, and we're going to deal ourselves as separate people, then we're getting nowhere in life. Bezat Hashem, that we should actually learn from this. And, and you know, it's, it's, again, I didn't mean, to, I don't know how much offense I, you know, I put over here. I don't think I did that much. No? Okay, good, Bo Hashem. But the idea is, is learn from it. Yes, it's something bad happened. We have to think about it. Why? And it wasn't because we weren't strong enough. It was because, and if I may say that, a possible reason is because we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing. All the heretics reasons, they're all nonsense, they're all excuses, they have absolutely no value whatsoever in it. Okay, Hazakaboh, may we actually, you know, learn, may we actually never have to have an, another Holocaust again, not for us, not for anybody. Uh, may we internalize this and may we actually, you know, internalize also the, the, the story of Purim. It's so, you guys have to, you guys have to learn this side. It's so awesome. You got, you, you have to, the, which by the way, we have a, uh, series that we did last year here yeah. on the hidden story of Purim. I strongly recommend that. Okay. Questions. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.